Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin. Welcome to the latest installment of Leading Voices with ULI, our podcast in which we're in conversation with leaders from throughout the real estate world, talking about their career paths, what got them into the real estate industry, and how, through their work, they're making a contribution to our cities and urban environments. Today's conversation is with AP Heard. We've now done 20 or so interviews in the series, and I can tell you that I've learned from each conversation. In the series, we've interviewed a wide range of leaders, in my words, both emerging leaders and well-established leaders reflecting on the work they've done. AP is one of the youngish leaders, still in her mid-40s. She came to real estate only midway through her 20-year career into a position where she was hired to lead a next-generation succession plan for a thoughtful group of founders who were thinking of succession half a decade in advance. We talk on the podcast about how she came to that challenge, how she fell in love with real estate, and the difference they're making in their home market of Seattle, as well as her outside of real estate activities, including a book she wrote with her dad on sustainability. She's an amazing woman. There's a postscript to this conversation, which is that since our interview, AP and Touchstone have announced that she will be leaving the company towards the end of the year. AP still has a long career and many accomplishments ahead of her. This might be the first time, but not the last time you'll be hearing from her, although next time it will be likely in leadership in a different organization. If you've been a listener to the podcast series, you know that in my day job, I'm the founder of Terra Search Partners, a real estate-focused search firm where I get to interview leaders in the real estate business as clients and candidates. On the podcast, I get to do the same, but for the purpose of sharing unique stories of leadership and accomplishments in the different nooks and crannies of the real estate world with both ULI members and other listeners. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope that you will subscribe to the series, which you can do on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I invite you to review the series on the iTunes store, and we welcome your comments, feedback, and discussion on ULI's Facebook or Twitter, or via email at leadingvoices at uli.org, or to me directly at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Good morning, AP. It's Matt Sleppin. It's good to be talking to you. Yeah, looking forward to our conversation. I am really pleased to have this conversation for the podcast and appreciate your taking the time. You and I spoke four or five years ago as you were embarking on a succession plan for your firm, which I think we're going to get to a little bit, but we haven't spoken since. And then I heard you speak in Seattle at the ULI spring meeting at a women's leadership breakfast. And I knew then hearing you that you had to be on the podcast. We've done 20 or 30 of these podcasts so far, and you bring some unique perspectives that I wanted to explore, which is really why we wanted to invite you. First, your early career. You're in your early to mid-40s, which in my book is still still young. And we get to talk as much about what you have accomplished as what is what you might want to continue to accomplish in your career. Second, in your relatively young career, you came to real estate halfway through. 
which is a unique perspective. And I want to explore how and why you came into real estate. And finally, maybe because you did come into real estate mid-career, you seem to bring a broader, holistic perspective on the business and what it means. And something tells me that if we do a podcast again in 10 years, there'll be some surprises and twists and turns in the story that may not be linear from what we're talking about today. So we want to cover all those topics, and I'm really looking forward to it. Sounds good. But the first question, just so I don't get flummoxed by alliterations, is where does AP come from? So I'm French-Canadian, and my mother had, well, I have a French name. It's Annie-Pierre. My mother had a French name, which was Marie-André, and my daughter has a French name, which is Émilie-André. And they're all hyphenated names. And I go by AP. And the sort of funny thing is that my daughter goes by M, which we spell E-M. But it sounds like we're just a family of initials. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That describes it all. And actually, maybe that's where I wanted to start in the conversation because you are French-Canadian. And again, you spent the first 10 years of your career, but the first 20 years of your life, you know, well outside of real estate in our world. What was it like growing up and where in Canada, where are you? And tell us your story. So I grew up in Ottawa, which is a government town, yeah. uh, a tremendously exciting place. And a lot of people think Ottawa is an English town, but it's right on the border of Quebec. And about half the people in Ottawa are French speaking. And actually, almost all the kids in Ottawa go to French immersion. So even children of English speaking families would be at school full time in French from the time they're in kindergarten. I grew up speaking French first. And then when I was three and a half, I learned English. And after that point, I spoke to my father in English and my mother in French. And I was in Ottawa until I went to college. I went to college in a town called Kingston, which most people in the US have not heard of, but it's at the eastern end of Lake Ontario. And went to university originally thinking that I would go to med school, like so many other people, and then made a switch into English literature, which I completed that degree. But then I had taken so many science courses that I realized if I stayed a couple of years longer, I could also get an engineering degree. And I was really involved with the campus paper and really into print and radio journalism. And so I thought, oh, I'll stay two more years. And I'll also have this degree that actually makes me kind of employable. And so I got a mechanical engineering degree as well. And then from there, I sort of found my way to Toronto. And I realized that even though I loved journalism, print journalism was already embarked on its long, slow decline. I think if I had lived in the days of Woodward and Bernstein, I would have stayed in print journalism and probably been doing it to this day. But I was trying to find an environment where I could build a career and uh, a newsroom while super exciting seemed like an environment where there was going to be more and more scarcity. And so I thought, what's sort of like a newsroom, but that sort of has a bright future ahead of it. And I thought, oh, if I go and work on a trading floor, that would be sort of similar, like high energy, high pace of activity, externally driven by events in the world. Hey, and so I went, uh-huh. oh, go ahead. Hey, question. So you're a young person, you're kind of interested in journalism, you understand mechanical engineering. How does a trading floor come into your head in the first place? Well, first of all, like this idea of the work environment, right? Like I thought, oh, what I love about a newsroom is sort of the buzz and the momentum and the intensity and 
that when something happens in the world, it causes everybody to sort of react. And so I thought that a trading floor shared a lot of characteristics of that environment. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that at the at the time, and this was sort of the mid 90s, the field of derivatives trading was really coming into its own. And turns out that the math to trade derivatives is really the same math as you use for thermodynamics. So I actually had the skill that was transferable. And so I went and worked for Royal Bank of Canada and traded derivatives for them both on their Toronto trading floor and then in New York City. I'm sorry, in Toronto and then New York? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I made, so I made my way to New York. And then at one point, they decided that they wanted to transfer me back to Toronto. And it was a promotion and everything. So it seemed like a really good thing. But I had had a really hard time getting my feet under me in New York. It took me about a year and a half to really find friends and find a really sort of settled place there. And so I thought, oh, I'm not quite ready to go back. And so I, I sort of asked around and it seemed like I didn't really have a choice about whether I went back to Toronto or not, if I was going to stay with Royal Bank. And so I looked for something else and ultimately got an offer from JP Morgan doing the same thing I was doing. And then I got another offer that was from a software startup. And you would think like, okay, well, you should keep doing what you're doing because it's going pretty well. But one of the things that I realized about banking was there was a lot of people I worked with who were maybe in their 50s and they were making a lot of money and they didn't really love what they were doing anymore. They had been doing it for so long and they wanted to do something different, but Uh their skill set was quite narrow. So it wasn't marketable into a different job. And they were sort of caught up in this lifestyle that didn't really allow them to make a change in job that would cut their income. And so they were making a lot of money, but they didn't have a lot of choices. And to me, Mm -hmm. a big part of the point of money is that it gives you choices. And so I thought, I don't know if I want to be doing this when I'm 50. Like it was super intellectually interesting work, but I thought, do I really want to do this for the next 30 years of my life? And then this other option, which was to go and work at a software startup that was leveraging the internet, this was still early days of the internet, that was a sort of B2B startup looking at sort of manufacturing and how you sort of planned manufacturing operations in continuous manufacturing environments like fibers and textiles and paints and chemicals. And I thought, oh, I could learn a ton doing that. And I was still kind of at the stage where I felt like I had the luxury of going to discover a new thing. And so I went to work for the software company and did that for, I don't know, 18 months or two years. And ultimately the company folded because we had licensed a piece of intellectual property, gotten a couple of big contracts, and then the people we licensed it from went around us and said to our clients, oh, we'll build you a front end for less. And that was a huge lesson for me because the I had always thought if you were legally in the right, you would prevail somehow. Right. And this was like a total object lesson in like, you have to be legally in the right and then you have to have money to make it happen. And we just didn't have enough kind of runtime of money left to go and have this protracted legal battle. And so the company ultimately folded. And I think that was just very, very, the whole process of working for a small company, but especially the ending was really eye-opening for me. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I went to grad school at MIT. And what did you choose to study at MIT? So this is also kind of an interesting story. I wanted to get an MBA, like so many people who have gotten a taste of business. And I had this very Canadian, almost socialist dilemma about it. <laughs> <Tell you that. laughs> so I thought I could go to business school in Canada, which would be much less expensive than in the U.S., 
But then a Canadian business school degree, while it would have a lot of currency in Canada, at the time, Canadian business schools were not so well known internationally. And I wasn't sure that my whole career would be sort of domestic in Canada. So I thought, okay, well, maybe it would be better to get a U.S. business school degree because the top business schools in the U.S. are really known, not just in Canada and the U.S., but also in Europe or other Asia. And so <laughs> there was some attraction to doing a business school degree in the U.S. So what turned from that into going to Seattle and getting into the real estate business? So I, when I was leaving business school, I, I met my husband and we, uh, we dated sort of the last year that we were both in Boston and we made, we actually were both engineers. He was in the same program. And so we made a spreadsheet to rate all these cities and we were trying to look at like 35 global cities and pick three that we would look for work in. Cause we thought if we look for work all over the world, we'll get two really good job offers in two different cities. So we made the spreadsheet and we rated all these cities on criteria, like how good are the grocery stores and how big is the airport and how deep is the job market and how affordable is housing and can you get around the city with just one car? And the top three cities we came up with were Amsterdam, Montreal, and Seattle. So we only looked for work in those three cities. And, you know, you can imagine in Seattle, there was really sort of deep opportunities with the kinds of companies that would be operationally or uh, manufacturing focused. So, you know, Boeing and Amazon and Starbucks and Microsoft were all kind of on the list of what we considered. And we came out here to interview in the winter of early 2004, I guess it was. And I got hooked up through my running buddy in Boston with Dean Allen, who is the CEO of McKinstry. And so as part of that trip, I met with him and chatted with him about McKinstry's business. McKinstry is a big mechanical contracting firm that's originally based in the Northwest, but is now really national and does a lot of energy services retrofit work. And they were just on the cusp of a very big growth spurt. And so I had a super interesting conversation with him. He's just an incredible person and entrepreneurial CEO. And when I got a couple of other offers, I called them up and said, hey, it looks like I'm going to be moving to Seattle and really appreciated meeting you. And I'll look you up when I get there. And he said, oh, we'd like you to come and work for us and start up a couple of new business units within our company. And I think for someone like me who was coming out of business school and didn't necessarily feel like I knew everything about any industry, but I had this sort of entrepreneurial bent, the opportunity to build a couple of businesses within a larger business was kind of ideal. And also the idea of being mentored by somebody that I just immediately had so much respect for. And so I wound up taking the opportunity at McKinstry and I totally didn't regret it. I was there for the part of three years and worked for the CEO and started a couple business units and spun them out into different divisions of the company and just learned a tremendous amount about the sort of real estate and construction industry. And we worked on a couple of small developments on McKinstry's campus in the south part of the city. And then from there, I was recruited to Touchstone in 2007. And that was through somebody who had previously worked at McKinstry and then had started her own mechanical consulting company. And she knew that Touchstone's founders we're starting to think about a succession plan. And I think, you know, in retrospect, this is incredibly admirable because a lot of people don't really think about succession planning till they're right up against it and hoping to leave in nine months. And the founders of Touchstone, before they got into this real estate cycle, realized, oh, we need to build a team and lay the groundwork and put in place everything 
to make that transition happen. And it's really like a five-year process or a seven-year process, not a one-year process. And so they recruited me over the course of 2007 to come and help build that new team and figure out how to manage the capital and human and risk transition within the company. So I did that and moved to Touchstone and we built a team and we built a pipeline of projects and Honestly, you know, they had a, you know, they had a lot of stick to itness to stick with that plan, even though the recession was much longer than we expected. And we were able to get all these projects started and attract capital and manage a successful transition and sale of the company in 2014 to Urban Renaissance uh-huh. Group. So it was kind of a, a long journey together and lots of twists and turns, both in the economy and in our perception of exactly how we were going to do it. But I think it's been a really successful road. So let me ask a couple different questions. One is, do you still have that spreadsheet on why you and your husband, how, how you chose Seattle? Um, I don't <laughs> I don't know. I haven't looked for it for a really long time. <laughs> well, <laughs> I suspect I, that some things about it would be different now, but I, I remember lots of the categories. Yeah. It, it's just interesting how one picks those categories and how they might change if you did it again. I'm sure they would, except there are probably a bunch of those things that really articulate your core values as a family. So I'm curious, when you're at McKinstry and you're starting these businesses, which is kind of t- related to real estate, but but as a service provider. And then the Touchstone guys hire you to, the way I look at it, begin a career in real estate. You're somewhat of an outsider, but you're 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 a great thinker. So what what role did they put you in? And did you start when you got there working on development transactions, or did you work right away on how you're going to move this organization? Two different things. Oh, that's a great question. So part of your question, I think, speaks to the idea of like, why the heck did they hire you? And I think, you know, yep. that's like with that, because I'm not sure, even in retrospect, I think, I think it's worked out well, and we've had a really good run. I don't know exactly why they picked me. I clearly didn't have the depth of experience of lots of other people that they could have picked. When when I started, we were building a project called West Ace, and we were we had just acquired a large parcel in Kirkland, Washington, called Kirkland Park Place, with Prudential Real Estate Investors, and there was a very big entitlement project that actually wound up spending about spanning about four years to get a comprehensive plan change and a rezone and master plan approval for about a 1.2 million square foot project. And I would say probably the first year. Uh, maybe year and a half of the time that I was at Touchstone, we really spent a lot of time focused on that project. And I spent a lot of time personally focused on that project. And then, you know, as time went on, we were creating other opportunities. I think we all understood, uh, certainly the founders understood, and I came to understand that the value of a real estate company is somewhat in its brand and its people, but also really substantially in its projects. And it's much easier to sort of create a transition if you're creating a lot of value at the same time. There's just more money to work with. 
And mm-hmm. so uh, it was never, there was never a sense of like, oh, we're somehow going to sell this company and it's going to be separate from the set of projects we have to create for the next cycle. Mm-hmm. So the, the projects were really, really integral to what we were trying to build. And we, we weren't trying to sort of sell something on day one. We were trying to run one more cycle together with the founders there, at least for part of it. And then they would exit sort of partway through the cycle. The other thing I would say is I had historically been sort of this more sort of quantitatively, operationally, strategically oriented person in the early years of my career, but I had never had a very outward facing role. And when I came to Touchstone and we were working with the community in Kirkland and trying to help fulfill this vision for the downtown that the city very much wanted, but that was a change from what the downtown had historically been. There was a real need to have this deep dialogue with the people who live there about what what is this vision? How do we make it shared by more people? How do we tweak it so that it can uh, maintain some of the things that people love about how their city is? And how can we help them invent new things that they can love? And I realized in the midst of those conversations that that was something that I was reasonably capable of and that I really enjoyed. And so those early years at Touchstone, I not only went from being more oriented towards sort of finance and the real estate and construction supply chain to truly sort of more this um, deal making and and kind of real estate project kind of world in terms of domain expertise, but also going from being a much more operational person to being this very outward facing person and really loving this opportunity to engage with the community and elected officials about what we could build together. And that mm-hmm. continued to just be a huge passion of mine. It's interesting because one of the questions from me to you is about that, which is kind of visioning projects and the difference that real estate can make. And it seems like maybe a fish to water, but you took the process, the entitlement process and the visioning process of a project, and that became your crucible in which to learn real estate. But then it, it got to your heart about what you can really do well. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I think I am somebody who's very motivated by the idea that business can be a force for good in the world. And we can, you know, and I say we, business people, can invent really things that serve people's needs and meet the challenges of society. And we are also really able to scale those things if we're successful at making money at them. If you think about how much the iPhone has changed people's lives, a lot of that change is for the better. And it's hard to imagine a government or a nonprofit having had what it takes to develop or distribute the iPhone at the scale that it is today. And so I always think that's a pretty interesting example of how business could meet all these needs that people have and really make people's lives better. I think my domain has been really to do that in the world of real estate, but I'm incredibly passionate about not just the world of ideas about what cities can be, but also in my own work, sort of the rubber meets the road of how do you make a building that actually does that and how can it be an example for other people? And then also 
in engaging with the policy world, how do you build a better box that everybody can develop in? If you think of the policy and legal environment as a set of constraints that our projects have to pass through, how do we make those constraints work so that more money can flow to the kind of buildings and cities that we want? Because we clearly have just a tremendous number of people moving to cities on both coasts of the U.S. It's really the locus of economic opportunity in the U.S. And and that phenomenon is also replicating in lots of parts of the world. So if we can make those cities something that leaves a better place and that people really love and are delighted by, then we've succeeded. And, and that feels like a, a wonderful challenge to chew on for one's career. It's a wonderful challenge. And it's interesting coming back to one of your prior comments. So you're 50 years old and you've been a trader for 25, 30 years. You've made a lot of money. You have a skill set that really is intellectually challenging, but maybe there's not much soul to it and not much longevity to it. Do you find that maybe in real estate, people at age 50 feel like they're there's there's more challenges and they're excited about it? Or uh, I shouldn't even ask the question because my experience is yes. I find it's a fascinating part of our industry that people mid-late career are as excited and energized by it as they are early on, maybe even more. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the things about trading is if you think about what you're trying to optimize when you're doing derivatives trading, there's a lot of math, but you're trying to optimize around, you know, 10 or 50 variables, all of which can be expressed very quantitatively. So it's not hard. I shouldn't say it's not hard. It's a, it's possible to build good quantitative models that do quite a good job of reflecting how the market will work. And then with some intuition to make good bets based on those models. Mm-hmm. I would say that the real estate environment is infinitely more complex and maybe more importantly, very, very difficult to express quantitatively. So yes, we do build models of our projects, right? When we do a pro forma, but that pro forma in a spreadsheet, it's really important to realize that that's one lens on the project. The pro forma doesn't tell you anything about what you're going to find when you excavate. It doesn't tell you anything about, you know, the political winds that are blowing in the jurisdiction that you're building in. It doesn't tell you anything about sort of how people's preferences for operable windows or granite countertops are going to evolve. So, you know, the list could go on for a long time. But the point I'm trying to make is that real estate is this wonderful combination of, you know, having this quantitative skill to build good models and also having this understanding of sort of where the market's going, both of which exist in derivatives trading. But then there's all this wonderfully squishy qualitative stuff that's about how people relate to the world, a lot of which even social scientists haven't tried to model. So there's a real opportunity to bring a human touch and and think deeply about innovation that can delight people in a way that is much richer than, I think, the pure financial environment that I started my career in. Although it's interesting in the real estate world, people do trade, they do take bets, and they do take risks, particularly in trading existing buildings. So, uh, you know, a huge mm-hmm. part of the industry is not doing the more creative stuff in development that we're discussing today. 
but they're trading portfolios and buying deals and deciding how long to hold them. And that does get closer to the more quantitative model. Yes, though, I guess I would say it's probably in the middle because if you're buying and selling buildings as opposed to, you know, a swap of a series of payments in the world where you're buying and selling buildings, you know, somebody could do road construction next to your building or someone could build something else next to it. So there are these real world factors that influence it. But I would say that I have noticed for sure that people who are purely in the investment world, sometimes they, they can better approximate how the building will do by looking at you know, mostly financial factors. And then I think in the development world, because you're starting with a sort of clean slate, if you will, and there's so many decisions about what to build that have to be made that, um, and also, uh, you know, quite a lot more jurisdictional authority about whether you will or won't be able to build, that there's a, a lot of human elbow grease, if you will, that has to take place to really make a project happen. And it is interesting, and maybe your comment back to the iPhone, which for some reason endlessly fascinates everybody because they can't put it down. But the the word delight, which you used a minute ago, and innovation can cause delight, really does happen in a building. And it does happen on a street, and it does happen in a neighborhood. And you know it when you see it, but it's it's really easy to to screw it up, and it's really hard to do it right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think... You know, one of the things I've thought a lot about over the last few years is that a lot of the work we do in development is about de-risking projects. It's about trying to make it more predictable how they'll turn out. And and you have to do that in development because the sums of money involved are really, really significant. And, you know, in many cases, it's people's pension fund money. Like, you have to be a good steward of it and manage risk really carefully. Alongside with that, it's really important not to manage risk in such a way that the environment winds up becoming bland and sterile. And there are lots of opportunities that we've been able to find where we're able to do small things just a little bit differently in a way that honors the humanity of the people that will be going through the building. So let's go back. So I'm, so I'm curious, you come to this company, they hire a person kind of not really in real estate, a lot of potential interesting person, it, but they're thinking succession well in advance. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about thinking succession in advance, because you're right. And although we, we get to make a living off this as recruiters, most people do wait till it's too late. But they hire you as the core person to build this around. That's That's a, a bit of a question. And then the second thing is, that the long-term planning for this comes around team, it comes around portfolio, and it comes around capital. So talk about how you successfully navigated. And then, of course, in the middle, you had a recession. We'll get to that. But you joined in a succession plan with a long-term goal. Put some more yeah. meat around that. Yeah. So I, the idea was that I would help them recruit that team. Now, they, the, the three founders of Touchstone, Douglas Howe, Jim O'Hanlon, and Sean Perry, they were sort of a, a triumvirate that brought really between them the key skill sets that you needed to do development. Douglas was the guy who had a lot of the imagination and gut feeling about where the city was mm-hmm. going and who found the opportunities and 
cooked up the deals. And then Jim O'Hanlon, who had a legal and operational background, was sort of the filter for those ideas, if you will, and, you know, the the yin to Douglas's yang um, mm-hmm. and sort of helped get the deals written down and make sure that stuff happened. And he had an account accounting background as well. So sort of all the financial pieces of running the company. And then Sean Perry, the third partner, was really the guy who had the construction expertise. And so when I think about, you know, I jokingly said earlier, I don't really know why they hired me. I think maybe one piece of it is that I had some ability to understand all three of their worlds, right? I had the ability to think of big ideas and I had, you know, I'd worked for a software startup and I had been in this entrepreneurial role history. So I had the ability to empathize with the sort of vision, entrepreneurial opportunity creating hat that Douglas wore. And I had, you know, enough financial rigor to sort of pass muster with Jim. And I had enough engineering and, you know, mechanical and construction world background that I was able to understand some of how Sean Perry's world worked around construction. And so I think there was a piece there that made me uh, maybe a, a good intersect of what they were looking for that I could empathize with all of what they wanted in a future team. So I think that maybe answers a bit of the first part of your question. And then maybe you can just rephrase the second part, which you said something about team and portfolio and capital. Sure. Well, then you had to, assuming that those three people were to leave, then you had to, and and I can see how this happens a a lot in companies when you have three founders, they play those kind of complementary roles and they can do it all as a group. So maybe between them and the next person could be a pretty wide gap. But they're all going to disappear. So they bring you in to rebuild the team. Maybe you have to recreate those disciplines within the company. So you build the team, and then what does that look like? What's your strategy to get there? And you're still kind of a newbie in real estate. So what does that all look like? And then how did you, you know, how did you accomplish the succession between you and your team and those guys? Mm. Okay, that's a great question. So. One of the things that is true in most real estate companies, and it was true in the organizational structure that Touchstone initially had, and it's true today, is no one person can have all the skills or all the knowledge to make good real estate decisions. And no one person can have the aptitude. I mean, at a minimum, I think in an entrepreneurial company, you need someone who's sort of stepping on the gas and optimistic and excited and coming up with ideas. And then you need somebody who's a bit more of a realist to sort of filter out what you are and aren't going to do. So quite aside from skills, it almost takes, you know, different personalities to be successful in a company. And then if you're going to be successful at scale, you even need more than two people because you need more diversity of opinion to, you know, test a wider range of ideas and bring a wider range of ideas to the table. So there was never any idea that, you know, I was going to somehow by myself replace these three people. I think maybe in some ways that made it easier that I was a little newer to real estate because I didn't feel the pressure to be all things to all people. I still today have people on my team who have much deeper domain experience in certain areas than I do. And, 
you know, leadership isn't about knowing how to do every person's job on your team. It's about understanding who they are and what makes them tick and what they're good at and when they want support and when they need runway to be their best selves. And so I guess, you know, yes, it's been a big learning curve over the last decade for sure, but also maybe there was a little bit less pressure thinking like, oh, I don't have to be the best person on the team at every single thing that we do. I guess the the other thing that's really worth mentioning, and this probably relates to things that you've seen in your own career, is when you have three very strong founders, like Touchstone did, and you're recruiting a new team to pick up the reins of the company, there is a little bit of temptation to divide up the company functionally along the lines of who the three original individuals were and to find mini-me's of each of them. And I think one of the things that we all learned in that process is that that is neither necessary nor really optimal because if you optimize around, oh, this person needs to be a perfect match to this other person – you're not necessarily going to get the best people. So it's important, I think, to focus on having all the skills you need distributed among all the people on your team. Like you need to, just like a good board, you need to say, okay, we want these 30 skills and someone on the team has to have each of those skills. But the, you know, you don't have to have a a new person who has exactly the same 10 skills as one of the original people. And so we did have to have some conversations about that at some point when we were sort of thinking through the hiring process and even thinking through people's job descriptions of really allowing people to bridge across different skill sets and do their best work, whatever skills they brought to the table. Well, and also you broke their paradigm because you weren't replacing a unique one of those three founders. You were a new dynamic into this. So they're building a team around what you might be versus replacing A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. I think that's true to some extent, yeah. So you you build your team and then we may or may not get to the recession because I have some other questions for you. But then also the second thing that's hard in a succession is finding the capital for the new team to lead the business and the old team to get out of the way. And maybe you Mm -hmm. accomplished that too. So talk about how you made that happen. So in 2013, we realized that we needed to have a really deliberate process around bringing in outside capital. In fact, we probably realized it a little bit earlier that we, the market was at a place where we could viably start that process. And we hired Heartland, which is a Seattle area consulting firm that does this kind of work to help us think about what the value of the company and the projects was and who capital partners could be and how we could package that up. And in the summer of 2013, we were able to secure, I think it was four or five really sort of legitimate offers. And I guess the only other thing I would add is one of the reasons we felt like we needed outside help is we had historically capitalized a lot of projects with institutional equity, but capitalizing a company was a very different proposition and needed more sort of programmatic capital that would be willing to be there through the ups and downs of the cycle. And so we were looking for a little bit of a different fish than what we had fished for historically. And that's why we decided to get outside help. And so you recapitalized the company. Did you also, were you able to recapitalize the company in a way that allowed your team to continue to do what you do? So how did you trade off on independence A and B 
do the founders have any ongoing involvement? So we completed the transaction in 2014, and the founders are sort of on a consulting basis for three years, which is sort of coming to an end here this year. And they have stayed, I would say one of them has stayed a bit more engaged in the business than the other two, but they've, you know, made themselves available. And I would say generally the transition's been pretty smooth. I think we all came through it intact enough that we could still sort of value value everybody else's contributions and realize where we still sort of wanted input and, and, you know, truly they have significant investments in the projects. And so, you know, we've also wanted to make sure that they're weighing into how the projects are going. So in the new structure, you know, we have institutional capital in our projects. We have urban renaissance groups capital in our projects and the founders still have some stake in the cycle projects. So it's a larger, maybe than typical group of stakeholders to manage, but I think we've been able to maintain good communication and good alignment. One thing I like to say is that retirement's the booby prize because you people find love and making a difference through their work and that it's hard. And maybe this is different when you have a lot of money, but it's hard to just walk away from a business like this in which you've poured in your heart and soul and, and you're, you find your meaning and then retire. And I think that's one of the reasons people hold on longer than they might otherwise is it's hard to have a transition plan where they can stand alongside of you versus leave or just do it forever and never plan for it. Mm -hmm. I think it's true. I mean, I think I haven't been through this, but there's probably, you know, two or three sets of challenges involved in retiring. One is what you do with your time. And Mm -hmm. there's certainly lots of meaningful things that people can do with their time that aren't necessarily what their first job was, but maybe harder is this question of, people's identity, both their Mm -hmm. sort of intrinsic identity, like who they think they are on the inside, but also who the community thinks they are. And I think navigating, especially when you've been a founder of a company, navigating that transition about sort of your inner identity and your community identity can be the harder bridge to cross. But, you know, lots of people are successful at doing it. I think it, 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 you have to be going to something rather than just leaving something. So we we only have a few more minutes, and I want to get to several major topics. So one thing we haven't talked about is, so we haven't talked about your book, which I want to get to. So the market was a little slower than it's been for the last four or five years. I did an outline of the book over the course of a summer, and I did it, not surprisingly, in a spreadsheet. It was about Mm -hmm. a 6,000-word outline, and then I actually wrote the first draft in about nine days over the course of Thanksgiving weekend and a little bit of the Christmas break in one year, and then spent about six or seven months editing it. So that sort of explains how the book got written. Originally, I had asked my father to help me edit it, and I think he thought he was more agreeing to do a copy edit. He had recently retired at the time, but then I think he realized how rough the first draft was. And so we had a collaboration that lasted really the best part of a year to edit it and find a publisher and do the final edits. And we also, the UW College of Built Environments, the Rundstad Center, very generously gave me a research assistant for some of that time, who was a really good grad student who had a background in journalism and writing. And so 
really the three of us worked on it for quite a long time and sort of made sure that we had done all the research on the fact checking in addition to making the text and the ideas flow a bit more smoothly. And it was a wonderful project, really fun to get to work on that with my father, who I'm really close to. And you know, as we got closer to publishing, I realized, you know, really, he's done as much work on this as I have, and it would be unfair not to have us be co-authors. And so I was really pleased that we were able to agree on that. It was a little reticent, but twisted his arm. Last question, because part of what one leaves in the world is one's family. You have kids, husband, you commute. How do you balance all this? And what's the rest of life look like? Um, well, I have a lovely daughter who's 10. And mm-hmm. I am, uh, seem to be able to be a decent parent with one child. I'm not sure that I could swing it if I had a brood. And I have a wonderful husband who, uh, you know, I, we have a great relationship, but he's probably more equitable than most in our division of work. But he's an executive at Boeing, and so he has a pretty demanding job in his own right. But we communicate a lot, and we email a lot, and we share calendars. <laughs> <laughs> and we <laughs> somehow seem to make it mostly work. And then, you know, one of the things I've talked a lot about is the need to sort of put down technology sometimes and be with family and, and do things with the people that you care about and not be interrupted by technology. And I think that's something that people are coming to reckon with in different ways that work for them each individually, but that maybe we need to continue the conversation about as an industry and as a society, because we're learning things about um, how the integration of technology in our lives can make things better, but also how some aspects of it can diminish our enjoyment of life or our ability to form relationships. And so I think we just need to be mindful and communicative about how we do that and, and just, you know, in the interest of making that concrete, like one of the things that I've been trying to do this year is not check my phone after seven at night and before six in the morning unless there is really like a deal going on or a crisis or whatever. And, and I will, if my phone rings or if I get a text, then I'll pick it up. But I don't want to be checking email in that sort of reflexive way of like, did I get an email? Did I get an email? Did I get an email? And and sometimes I, I at least for me, and speaking for myself, that can be a little bit addictive. And sometimes it's not entirely necessary. And, I, you know, people said, well, what if someone emails you at 830 at night and they really need something? And I think, well, if they really need something, they'll probably call. And and obviously, like if I'm in the middle of working on a transaction, then I stay plugged in. But there's lots of times where, you know, probably things are going to be OK if you don't check your email at nine o'clock at night. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast, hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.